It's good to be in the house of the Lord and to see so many visitors in our midst. Welcome to all of you, some of you particularly dear to my heart. So it's a great encouragement to have you with us. For those visitors who do not know, I'm working my way through Galatians. So if you have your copy of the Word, go ahead and take it up. The message this morning will be from chapter 2 of Galatians verses 11 through 14, but I think I'm going to back up a bit and begin at verse 1 in chapter 2 and read. Hear now the Word of God. Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I was also forward to do. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for this word. As we consider the truth revealed before us, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, work through the foolishness of preaching to instruct us and bring application and understanding where we are dull and rebuke us where we have gone astray and stir us up to greater love for you and for one another as we seek to live gospel lives before your face. We thank you for your abundant goodness and mercy that follows us all the days of our lives and we do so in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Slowing down. I like that. The text before us this morning is short, succinct, and gets right to the point that Paul is desiring to make. And that point is that he is here presenting a continuation of his defense that the gospel that he has taught, the gospel that he has proclaimed to the churches in Galatia has been delivered with an apostolic authority that he received by direct revelation from Christ. That is the main point, and we don't want to lose sight of that as we look more closely at these verses throughout this message. We might simply restate his case in this way. If I, Paul, rightly rebuked Peter, who is a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, you may be confident that the gospel I delivered to you is true. And it was delivered by an apostle with the authority equal to that of the other apostles. While this is a short passage and the point is straightforward, I think it would be profitable to take a step back to consider the context and some of the details included here and see what else the Spirit would have us to know and understand. And this I will do by pointing out what we know from the text, what is explicit, and what is implicit in this scene. So let's first consider the scene. Verse 11 opens with, but when Peter came to Antioch. So the setting is the city of Antioch. At the beginning of chapter 2, we just read, we recall that Paul was given the account, uh, giving them the account of traveling to Jerusalem with Barnabas and meeting with James and Peter and John. And when these pillars of the church perceived the grace that was given to him, they gave him the right hand of fellowship both to Barnabas and to Paul, that they should go to the Gentiles and that Peter should go to the circumcised. Only they asked him to remember the poor, that very thing he was eager to do. So Paul and Barnabas left Jerusalem in good fellowship and understanding. But sometime later, Paul is in Antioch at the same time as Peter and Barnabas. It might be helpful to understand that the church in Jerusalem at this time was largely composed of Jewish Christians, new converts to the faith, and Antioch was one of the chief churches of the Gentile Christians. So as Peter travels to Antioch, it is therefore quite natural that he should find fellowship with the church and participate in their daily life. We can infer from the passage that Paul was also, at the very least, witness to Peter's participation in table fellowship with the Gentiles in Antioch. And this was a right and good thing for him to be doing. But at some point, others arrive on the scene, Jews who came from James and Jerusalem, and the situation begins to escalate. And to set the stage in our minds, we can summarize the escalation of the situation like this. First, Peter comes to Antioch and begins to eat with the Gentile Christians. Second, certain men from James came to Antioch. Third, Peter becomes aware of this group from James and he begins to fear Fourth, his fear causes him to draw back and separate himself from the Gentile Christians. 
fifth, the rest of the Jews and even Barnabas, Paul's partner in the ministry, withdrew and they joined in their hypocrisy. Sixth, Peter stood condemned in his behavior. That is, he was guilty of wrongdoing, guilty of sin. And seventh, Paul therefore rebukes Peter to his face. So let's take a few minutes and look at this escalation of events and see what's going on. First, we see from verse 12 that before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. At this point, everything was good and as it should be. Peter's behavior was consistent with his profession and what the Lord had revealed to him. He was enjoying his liberty in the gospel. Not only was he not hindered in his table fellowship, he apparently wasn't placing any burdens on the Gentile believers there to become a Jew or to behave as a Jew. This was a lesson that Peter had learned some time back and in a most dramatic way. Do you recall the scene from Acts 10? Peter was staying with Simon the tanner of Joppa who had a house down by the seashore. And we read there in Acts 10 beginning at verse 9, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descended to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. And this was done three times. And the object was taken up again into heaven. Peter goes on from this encounter with the Lord and travels to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius and his household and some of his close friends. And of course, Peter preaches the Gospel to them, which includes this astonishing statement. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. Peter has understood this vision from the Lord to mean not only, not only that the food laws are no longer binding, and that in Christ, the good pork barbecue and fried catfish that the Gentiles partake of is lawful, but that the Gentiles themselves, the people, are to be called to the Gospel. That in the name of Christ, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sin. Having received the vision, Peter understood. He understood and he made application beyond simply what is lawful to eat. And while Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the Word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. And, many, and as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them, that is the Gentiles, speak with tongues 
and magnify God. It was an unforgettable working of God. Peter knew well the liberty he had in Christ. He had preached and he had followed the Spirit's leading. Returning now to our scene from Galatians in Antioch. And then certain men came from James to Antioch. We don't, we don't know much about these men, but we can assume that they were Jewish converts from Jerusalem and that they, at least in some sense, carried some authority or weight since they came from James. Peter clearly understood that these men would expect for him to be living righteously before the Lord, which to them meant adhering to certain outward observances of the law. So what is Peter's response to the presence of the contingent of Jews sent from Antioch, who were most likely Pharisees? Fear. What kind of fear? Fear of judgment? Fear of retribution? Fear of being ostracized and excluded? Or was there you know, even some possibility of violence. We don't know the particulars of the fear, but we do know the result of the fear. As a result of this fear, Peter stumbles. He draws back from the table fellowship with the Gentile Christians and separates himself. And this is a big deal. The Lutheran theologian Joachim Jeremias describes the massive social and spiritual implications that an invitation to a meal held in the minds of the Jewish culture, namely a declaration of worth, the offer of acceptance, and the assurance of divine forgiveness. He writes, In Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. Table fellowship functioned as a social boundary, indicating both who was inside the boundary and who was outside. Mealtimes were sacred to Jews, but these Jewish Christians from James have failed to remember that Christ came to save sinners and that He broke bread with sinners. They only remembered that to eat with Gentiles would be scandalous. But even as Christians, they failed to grasp fully who Jesus is and that it could therefore be in no way scandalous if Jesus, Emmanuel, ate with tax collectors and sinners. Peter knew better. And so his withdrawal from table fellowship with the Gentiles was a sinful act of hypocrisy. But not only did Peter withdraw, the other Jews that were there with them joined in this hypocrisy. Even Paul's good friend and ministry partner Barnabas joined in the hypocrisy. And if you are following along in the King James, you will note the words dissembled and dissimulation. And the Greek behind these words is translated is the word from which we get our, our word hypocrite and hypocrisy. And that's what you'll find in some of your translations. In other words, in their withdrawal, they were acting in contradiction to their convictions. They were play-acting in a most unharmful 
and deceitful manner. They were being hypocrites. As Paul watches this situation unfold, it is obvious that Peter's behavior is sufficient to condemn himself. And I think Peter, at some level, must have been aware of his sinful hypocrisy, but that it was the kind of awareness that we are all capable of in a moment of weakness or when we give fear a foothold. In verse 11, Paul says Peter stood condemned. There was no good excuse for this behavior. There was no need for a trial or a defense attorney. Peter stood condemned. The wrongness of his action was self-evident. All Peter needed in this moment was for a brother to throw a flag on the play. And that is exactly what Paul did. As I tried to picture this scene in my mind, I see a rather large gathering of the church for a regular fellowship meal there in Antioch. Week after week, or perhaps even day after day, Peter and Paul gather with the Christians in Antioch to teach, equip, and build up the church. The mills are filled with joy and excitement and constant conversation centering on the faith and their new life in Christ. It is a glorious scene. And then one day, at the very beginning of a meal, this group from Jerusalem shows up. It would have been easy to identify them. Their dress was distinctive, as was the way they carried themselves. Peter and Barnabas and the others are sitting there intermingled with the Gentile converts, having a grand time, and they look up to see the James gang arrive. Paul is, of course, near the end of the food line, line, no doubt because he was entangled in a heavy theological discussion that was keeping him back. And when he looks up, just in time to see Peter and Barnabas pick up their anachronistic food trays and go to the far side of the courtyard where the new guys from Jerusalem have found a seat and are unpacking their kosher lunches. Paul can't quite believe what he is witnessing, but he is certain what his duty is in that moment. He sets down his food and walks over toward Peter. Peter looks up, sees Paul, and they lock eyes. In that moment, Peter's fear turns to shame and conviction, but Paul's duty is not yet fulfilled. Rebuking Peter in front of the whole crowd of Jews who are likewise in error, Paul says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Of course, things didn't transpire that way. And I hope you'll forgive my extra-biblical imaginary excursion. It's a great temptation to venture into some form of contemporizing and embellishing, especially when the text is short short on details, and, and we are desiring to know more and wonder what applications there are for us in the biblical text. As I did some study, it seems as if there's quite a bit of speculation around the missing details of this account. Some try to make the case that Peter, the Peter referred to here, Cephas, in some text, was not the Apostle Peter, but was some other Cephas. 
but that case rests upon a false assumption of apostolic infallibility in their behavior. Some would contend that Paul's rebuke of Peter led to a permanent breakdown in their fellowship. But this is difficult to imagine as we consider the harmony of Peter's epistles written after this event. The harmony with Paul's teachings and even the fact that in his general epistle of 2 Peter chapter 3 he wrote, As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written you. Beloved brother Paul. Some even want to take to place this rebuke in the context of a formal church gathering, a trial. But I think that goes beyond what is revealed here and what we know of the character of Paul. While Paul knew the gravity of this error, he also knew that Peter knew better and would likely receive his brotherly rebuke well. As a result of this position, I entitled this message, A Loving Rebuke. Because I believe that is the nature of Paul's rebuke of Peter, and I believe it is what we, as a church, need to grow into and have a better understanding of. We speak much of living in community, of the benefits of community, of how we have greater opportunity to live out the one another's in the context of community. Yes and amen. Part of practicing the one another's well is learning to speak a loving rebuke to your brother or your sister and learning to receive and respond to that loving rebuke well. It is an exchange that requires humility, spiritual maturity, and trust. A trust that is extended with the full knowledge that we live in the context of a community of sinners. A trust that the one who is bringing the rebuke is, is doing motivated by love and nothing else. A trust that in bringing a rebuke, your brother will hear you in all humility and not shoot the messenger or cause the relationship to grow cold. This is not an easy thing to practice. And for some of us, it runs contrary to every fiber in our body. But the Scripture says, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Proverbs 12.1 Do you hate to receive correction? If so, then according to Scripture, you are stupid, foolish, brutish, like a dumb animal. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. It is the faithful friend that is willing to come alongside and say the hard things that need to be said to you. How many times have you said or thought, she needs to hear this, but I just don't want to hurt her feelings. Or, I don't think he has a clue how harmful that behavior is, but I'm not about to say anything to him or he'll never speak to me again. 
And we could go on and on. Scripture says that it is better to openly rebuke than to hide your loving concern. So the question is, do you have blind spots? Yes, we all do. Are there areas in your life where you continue to stumble or yield to a besetting sin? Are there? Then a loving rebuke might just be what you need to remove the blinders from your eyes and see more clearly how to confess, repent, and grow in the grace of our Lord. But you need to be willing to receive and willing to give that loving rebuke. But you may ask, doesn't love cover a multitude of sins? Yes! So how then do I know when to let love cover and when to confront someone's sins? And that's a good question. Thank you for asking. And the answer is wisdom. Now, I know some of you won't be happy with that answer, and you'd rather have a flowchart or perhaps a decision tree to help you navigate the situation. But wisdom is the answer. And so let's consider some hypothetical situations. Using real people in this congregation, just to make sure everybody stays awake, and I'll try not to offend anyone. So let's say Kelly is having a bad day. And I know it. I accidentally bump into him and he spills coffee on his jacket and promptly proceeds to angrily bite off my head for being so careless. What do I do? Is this a case for letting love cover his response? Yes, it is. I love my brother. I know my brother and this is out of character for him. But I'll also receive his admonition to be more careful. I will apologize and ask for his forgiveness and offer to have his jacket dry cleaned. And how do you think Kelly will respond? It'll be conviction. Who's next? Let's say that I find my brother Perry promoting in all sincerity Pelagian heresies on Facebook and leading folks astray. Should I look the other way because I love my brother? Or should I take him aside and expound to him the way of God more perfectly because I love my brother? And how should Perry respond when confronted this way? Okay, one more final example. Let's say that I have been witnessing Junior struggle to train his children. He's frustrated. He's asleep. <laughs> he often loses his temper and his wife only aggravates the situation by indulging the children's disobedience. To make matters even worse, this lovely couple doesn't even seem to know there is a problem, even though it's been going on since they joined the church. What should I do? Is this a love-covering situation, or is it a time to consider a loving exhortation for them to seek some advice, some counsel. How should Junior and Mrs. Junior receive this unexpected exhortation? Someone liked Mrs. Junior. Okay. <laughs> there's wisdom involved, surely, in each one of those, and there are nuances, and there's skill, and there's being spiritually prepared. 
But that doesn't excuse us from the obligation to speaking to our brothers and sisters a loving rebuke. Part of knowing when and if a loving rebuke is in order is first discerning the situation. Notice from our text that Paul says in verse 14, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, he observed the situation firsthand. And the standard by which the error was measured was the truth of the gospel. So let's ask ourselves, how had Peter not walked uprightly according to the truth of the gospel? And we can see from the text at least three ways. And so let's take a look at those. First, in fear. More specifically, fear of man. When Peter became aware of the contingent sent by James, he was afraid how they would respond to his gospel liberty in the table fellowship with the Gentiles there in Antioch. But fear of man, fear in any of its form, is not a fruit of the gospel. No, we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. We are not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us within holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. If you are afraid of the judgment of man, then you are not adequately fearing the judgment of God. And you don't adequately know the power of the gospel. We don't know the power of the gospel. If you are controlled by your fears, if you see danger in every insect or arachnid, if you are afraid of planes and trains and the fast lane on the interstate, if you fear a boogeyman in every corner, if you are consumed with fearful worries about your children, your financial security, or the ingredients of the casserole set before you, if you are often afraid of your spouse leaving, the creek flooding, or having a flat tire on Sulphur Creek, your primary need is to see the gospel through fresh eyes, to believe the gospel again, to reflect upon the profound truth of the gospel that the very God of heaven gave His only Son to die on the cross for you. Our great, omnipotent, omniscient, all-loving, and most merciful God does not give us a spirit of fear. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things... We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. This is who we are in Christ. 
If God is for us, we are safe. And there is no need to fear. If fear can be a stumbling block, could be a stumbling block for Peter, it will be a stumbling block for you. And if we do stumble in our fear, how wonderful a blessing to have a brother like Paul bring a loving rebuke to show us our error. Secondly, Peter and those with him failed to walk uprightly according to the gospel in their hypocrisy. They were walking in the gospel rightly when they were enjoying and partaking of table fellowship with all the Christians in Antioch, including the Gentiles. But they became as hypocrites when they separated themselves and pretended as if they were all about keeping kosher. But Paul has already covered this in chapter 1, right? Gospel plus circumcision equal not another gospel, but no gospel at all. Gospel plus separate table fellowship equal no gospel at all. Gospel plus dietary laws equal no gospel at all. Gospel plus separate water fountains equals no gospel at all. Proclaiming the gospel with your mouth but then living in hypocrisy is a betrayal of the gospel at its core. Center your life on Jesus and His gospel, and the root of hypocrisy will be severed. In the words of Paul's loving rebuke to Peter, we find the third way in which the Jews were not walking uprightly according to the gospel. and That is legalism. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You've probably said many times to yourself that actions speak louder than words. Peter's actions, motivated by fear and manifested in hypocrisy, spoke very loudly that there was still the need for something else in addition to the gospel. When Peter, as an apostle, cut off table fellowship with Gentile brothers and sisters because they didn't keep dietary laws, and he took Barnabas and all the Jews with him, the Gentile believers could not escape the implication that they were not fully Christians unless they became Jews. This was a powerful, if unspoken, form of coercion into legalism. Trusting in anything other than the pure, unadulterated gospel in order to be fully accepted by God and His church is true legalism. I'm afraid we play a little fast and loose with our use of the term legalism these days. We tend to use it to describe anyone in the church who is trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, but who is also seeking to live a Christian life. It is fully pleasing before the face of God and also embraces the imperatives and indicatives of Scripture with a pure heart. Especially if they do so to a greater degree and with a greater zeal than we are inclined to. We kind of want to place ourselves right there in the middle in the sweet spot of Christian practice and label anyone to our right as a legalist and everyone to our left as a wretch or a libertine. Clearly, anyone who believes it is good to attend church every week is a legalist, right? 
Clearly, anyone who takes the exhortation to put off filthy communication as important or who meticulously ties on his gross income or refuses to cheat on his income tax is a legalist. Right? Only if they are placing their trust and hope in those things. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ died in vain. If their hope is in Christ alone and in the gospel, they are simply seeking to honor God in what they do and how they do it. They are looking to His Word to order their lives, and they have not fallen into legalism. So given these three ways in which Peter and those who followed him stumbled and were weren't walking according to the truth of the gospel, let me conclude with three exhortations in the same three categories. Exhortation number one. Believe with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind in the glorious truths of the gospel of our Lord and Savior and fear no man or anything else. Jesus said it this way, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We are to fear God alone. A former Archbishop of Canterbury was once asked by a reporter if he believed in God. The question caught him off guard, and the Archbishop replied, Well, Sort of. It depends on what you mean by God. What a terrible shame. And what a missed opportunity. It should have been as natural as breathing fresh air for the archbishop to seize that moment and proclaim the glory of God, to declare his utter dependence and hope upon Christ, to preach the gospel from the housetop, as it were. But he was ashamed of the gospel. He was afraid of the response and how it would make him be seen by the reporter or perhaps something even worse. Or consider the story that Philip Ryken, an ordained teaching elder in the PCA, successor to James Boyce as pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia and current president of Wheaton College, tells of a similar missed opportunity. He was on an airplane heading out on a skiing vacation when a rather nervous woman sitting next to him turned and asked, Are you religious? He suspected that she was hoping he was praying that the plane wouldn't crash into the mountains. He says the answer he gave was so noncommittal that she was later surprised to find out that he was in seminary and it was she who then had to inform him that he didn't have to be afraid. He was so ashamed of his fearful lack of a response that the next day he started sharing the gospel with strangers on the ski lift. When the fear of people overcomes our fear of God, we are likely to deny the gospel. Unless we are willing to stand up for God at work on Monday, we are just pretending at church on Sunday. Exhortation number two. Believe with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind in the glorious truths of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, and don't play the hypocrite. 
Hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the doctrines taught in scriptures. Hold to the principles found in scriptures and be willing to suffer the consequences for doing so. Anything else is hypocrisy. Sadly, it seems these days that hypocrisy is everywhere and certainly goes hand in hand with political posturing. To give but one example, former Senator, presidential nominee, and Secretary of State John Kerry claimed to hold a strong Roman Catholic belief, but also supported legal abortion and civil unions for homosexuals. And he defended this, his position by stating, I don't make decisions in public life based on religious belief. And that was in 2004. We live in a time when the truth is under attack from every angle. Logic and reason have been tossed to the wayside, and hypocrisy is so normal that many people, it seems, are able to hold two completely incompatible and contradictory thoughts or positions in their minds without realizing the logical contradiction and hypocrisy they have embraced. As Christians, we must hold fast to the truth. We must stand ready to give a reason for the hope we have in Christ in meekness and fearing the one, the true and living God. We are a people of the truth. Satan, as the father of lies, is delighted to use hypocrisy to draw people away from the truth and to deceive the faithful and to bring it really close to home. Don't let hypocrisy enter into the unity of fellowship that we are to have here in this church with one another. Christ said, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another." When we say that we love one another but act differently, we are playing the hypocrite. Keep table fellowship with everyone. Be slow to anger and quick to forgive. And put off any hypocrisy you find in your lives. Exhortation number three. Believe with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind in the glorious truths of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, and avoid legalism in all its forms. And it comes in so many forms. Where is your hope? What is the object of your faith? Is it Christ and Christ alone? If you were to lose your health, utterly lose your health, would you be in despair and without any hope? If so, then you have placed some portion of your hope and faith in your health. And this is an error that needs to be repented of because it undermines the gospel. Now, I know these are hard questions to consider, but replace health in this question with a family member. Replace health with your job. Replace health with your retirement fund or your best friend? And the answer remains the same. We can't take the good blessings in our lives and make them the ground of our hope 
and the object of our faith. We can't look to our integrity or our modesty or our diligence or excellence in any practice of our faith and place our hope there. No, these are good things. These are good things perhaps, but, but they flow out of the hope we have in the Gospel. They are rooted in Christ. These are fruit. They are not our hope. Our hope is Christ alone. And bonus exhortation number four. Let's commit to growing in our ability and willingness to give and receive loving rebukes and exhortations to and from one another. It may be a bit awkward at first, a bit uncomfortable perhaps, but we need to follow Paul's excellent example here in Galatians. And let's not forget to do something equally as important and something much, much easier. Let's continue to share words of encouragement with one another. Let us more and more acknowledge the work of Christ we see in one another. Let's speak with much delight of the goodness of God and the glory of Christ. Let's let the excitement we have for the gospel overflow into the lives of those we work with and eat with and enjoy recreation with. Let's continue to look for opportunities to love and serve one another in times of need. And I need to say on this point that I believe this is one of our great strengths. God's great goodness has been poured out on this little church in astounding abundance. Therefore, thanksgiving and rejoicing and multiplying and sending are in order as we steer clear of complacency and fear and hypocrisy and legalism. And remember that the loving rebuke of a brother or a sister rightly given or received are a means of grace to those very ends. And we give thanks to God. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks and ascribe all glory and praise to you for your provision and preservation of the gospel. We are thankful the, the faith of, for the faith of Paul and for his willingness to rebuke his brother Peter for the sake of the gospel. We pray for courage to exhibit such love for one another, that we may come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be as little children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. But, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, even Christ Jesus. For we pray this in His mighty name. Amen.